1: talk about beer and this week with a side of cider i'm not sure how many times over my career writing about beer that i've heard that we are bracing for the cider explosion yet it's never really happened that's despite the creation of ciders such as the willie smith's range that show just how complex and interesting cider can be so, when Willie Smith's co founder Sam Reed launched a craft brewery, Duquesne, in Launceston, it seemed a great prism through which to examine all the contrasting fortunes of craft beer and craft cider over the last decade, as well as the background to his new brewery and what that tells us, if anything, about where he sees the market for the two beverages. Enjoy my conversation with Sam Reed from Duquesne Brewery. Sam Reed, welcome to Beer as a Conversation.
0: Thanks for having me, Matt. Great to be here,
1: mate. It's uh, I, I'll be honest, it's been a long time that I've wanted to speak to you on the podcast. But with the podcast called Beer as a Conversation, it's been a little bit hard justifying chatting to somebody about cider. But you finally opened a brewery.
0: Well, yeah, it's <laughs> funny you should say that because I think I sent a note to uh, James from the Crafty Pint the other day when he featured uh, the opening. Said I, I knew I'd, I really wanted to get there, and so this is what I, the links I'd go to to get featured on Crafty Pint at some stage, so yeah.
1: (laughs) We will come to the brewery, but the way that you came to operating a brewery is something that I'm very interested in. So as we generally do on Beer is a Conversation, maybe you just sort of tell us who is Sam
0: Reed. Well, I'm I'm getting to be a relatively old bloke these days, but um, yeah, I'm based in Launceston now. Um, I went to university here. I was born in South Australia, though. Um, My father is Taswegian, moved over there to study university and met my mother. I don't know how far in depth you want to go, but (laughs) I guess I'm giving you the full one. Um, I grew up in South Australia, um, Mm -hmm. needed to get out, went backpacking around the world and um, around Europe. And then um, my folks moved back to Tassie, I guess. I call it back to Tassie because we'd been visiting my grandparents, you know, since I was a young tacker. Um, every three years because you know flights and the able tasman were fairly difficult to get across from um, outback south australia um so yeah we came back came back kind of reasonably regularly or but infrequently at the same time and when i heard we were they were moving here i thought i'll go to anu instead to do my studies um turned out i owed them a fair bit of money and after (laughs) after traveling around europe so they said well you can do that or you can and pay for yourself or you can live rent with us in Launceston. So that was how I got to Launceston and, uh, ended up having a great time during university. There were people from all over Australia studying maritime and, uh, aquaculture. And, um, you know, there was a place called the Royal Oak hotel, which I spent a lot of my formative years in drinking Bogue's draft. Of course. Um, I left pretty much straight after university thinking there wasn't much to do in Launceston and joined BP, um, the oil company I got on a graduate program. They promised worldwide travel, um, a global career. That sounded pretty good to me, so I sta- signed up and jumped at the opportunity. Spent uh, three years in um, just outside New York in a place called Hoboken in New Jersey, working for Castrol as part of BP, and then um, went to London um, or Swindon, more like it. Was, lived in London and worked at Swindon, which is, if you've watched enough of The Office, um, you may know swindon is a butt of many jokes um and uh but strangely familiar and strangely reminiscent of launceston um too at the same time um yeah so i did that for three years um decided read a book called shantaram and decided with my wife that now my then wife that we'd moved to india um to get some developing market experience and um it didn't last particularly long, but I had a good time and followed the Aussie cricket team around, doing the one dayers for uh, for one of those seven game series, uh, which was a lot of fun. And then came back to Australia and, um, in order to kind of settle down, have a family, and do all those kind of things, I uh, it was my turn to choose because I've been following my wife around for a little bit and. Um, I was interviewing actually. So I had to think about what I loved. I didn't want to really sell oil the rest of my life. And I realized what I loved most was sport and booze. And, um, I thought working for a booze company who sponsors sport sounded like the ideal scenario. So, um, I was interviewing for, uh, the VP for a VB brand manager job in Melbourne and, uh, then interviewing for a Guinness brand manager job in Sydney, uh, with Diageo. So it was the Guinness one that came through, um, Their office was in Bondi, so that was pretty good from my perspective to be able to live at the beach. I'd always set myself the goal of living in Bondi at some stage, having stayed with a mate there for a while during the Rugby World Cup. And uh, and so I ended up at Diageo um, selling Guinness, um, which was great because I'd been drinking a lot of that in London. Um, And that was kind of, yeah, my... My, for, my entry into um, alcohol marketing, I suppose. So,
1: What was the skills transference from Castrol BP to uh, Diageo?
0: Well, I always like to make the joke that I was doing mechanical lubrication to social lubrication. So there was actually <laughs> – um, it was still okay. founded, founded in lubrication, um, just different parts. Um, oh, I mean, I think I was working um, on this brand called Castrol Edge. It was a recently launched brand for Castrol um, designed to, I guess – play in that premium space and we'd really focused a lot on that kind of younger demographic that mobile one was probably missing out on. So a lot of digital marketing, a lot of, um, you know, influencer marketing um, and a lot of, uh, yeah, just a lot of good fun times really, you know, a lot of fast and the furious um, collaborations, et cetera, happening. And um, yeah, it worked out uh, that there was probably a lot of uh, skills overlap and, and you know, and targeting overlap in terms of a younger demographic so
1: because i don't think of you know oil products as being a fast-moving consumer good in 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 the way that you know uh beer uh, brands tend to be
0: uh no it's uh it well, actually in the us it's uh very much seen as fmcg walmart is the biggest okay. customer of uh of castrol and i mean traditionally obviously more in the in the deep South or Jesus land as it's sometimes called or the Trump heartland where everyone changes their own oil and they do it four times a year. So, uh, very much seen in the FMCG space here. And, you know, we have a lot of, um, auto parts stores here in Australia too, you know, the likes of Repco and Autobahn and, you know, who sell a lot of of oil too for people who like to change their own oil, like to get their hands dirty. It's actually not, it's not me. Uh, I've never changed any (laughs) oil in my life, but, um, so, but I so had you didn't to, have to
1: be mechanical to uh, to to work in that market.
0: Well, you had to kind of bullshit your way along, I suppose. So I did that, but um, yeah, I didn't have to be mechanically minded. No.
1: Did the uh, promise of working for Diageo and uh, you know drinks companies pay out for you in the end? Was it was it what you expected?
0: Um, yeah, no, I had a great time. Diageo had a really great culture. Um, you know, we were based in Bondi Junction. There was a. Um, a bar upstairs that was open five days a week after work, you know, we had, um, Sven, Al Manning and the team from behind bars running that, Mm -hmm. um, who obviously behind a number of great cocktail bars, I learned to appreciate, um, you know, great drinks beyond beer. I'd always have been a massive fan of beer and, um, and, uh, then I moved into an innovation role as well, worked with some great people and learned some great skills and moved into an innovation role, um. In my last role at Diageo, um, you know, working with a guy who's kind of been a mentor and a friend, John O'Curno. And um, yeah, we, you know, Diageo was actually looking at a cider pro- project, um, or, you know, because the cider market was blowing up. So it was kind of interesting to see that cider project, um, see the analysis done um, that we'd done and, and see what kind of clear white space there was in there for a kind of craft side of product. I was, you know, when I, I was actually starting to think I needed to do my own thing. Um, I would have loved to have done craft beer back then. But at the time, I really found that, you know, thought that craft beer had been done to death. Um, how wrong I was, um, <laughs> as it turns out. But, um, but yeah, pleasantly wrong, I suppose. And, um, and, yeah, so I thought, and then a friend of mine came to me. Um, and suggested as a drinks marketeer that he was trying to do a cider brand and um said well, he wanted my help they'd tried to do one before it hadn't worked and you know could i help them out so you know started talking and um and uh you know i thought needed to have a sense of place needed to be from somewhere needed to be kind of crafted you know different unique flavor profile etc and um that was really the the start of the Willie Smith story I suppose from there so
1: before we go to tell me about that what was it because we we're, we're talking uh, for the listener's point of view around 2012 that you started uh Willie Smith cider or you were co-founder of uh Willie Smith cider I, I take it there would would have been some planning before you actually opened uh Willie Smiths. so and 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 yet you thought that craft beer had been a little bit played out by that stage um Tell, tell me about that because there would have only been what 150 breweries, if that, back in 2012.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, what really got me noticing craft beer was probably uh, Bale Ale or I don't remember, Trip Smith's first mm. venture. I started drinking a lot of that, seeing that was around the place um, all through um, Surrey Hills. Um, I think James Squires was probably around as well at that time. Well and truly, um, yep. And, um, you know, and then you know, Rocks was around, and, and some of the OGs, um, and yeah, I guess I just thought, wow. And then there'd been a few buyouts recently, then too. Um, and I guess I was just thinking, all right, this is um, this is you know pretty much peaking out, maxing. But um, yeah, I was very very wrong there on that front. But I just saw uh, much greater, I suppose, white space in the craft cider market at the time because you know people were drinking you know, sweet, fizzy, recorderly stuff or, you know, traditional, um, not traditional, I guess, but a cider made by winemakers who were making it pretty pretty acidic and pretty thin. And I just thought there's a really huge, you know, gap in between these two that we can create a cider that I like drinking, I suppose. So, yeah. Well,
1: the- We might park the brewing side of it and what changed your view uh, to to Open Duquesne now, but let's talk a little bit about cider. So, who did you work with to start the Willie Smiths uh, brand?
0: Uh, Well, look, there was a good friend of mine, um, Glenn Bowery, who is is and continues to be a great um, designer, who uh, came to me. Um, I started talking to him about what it is um, I thought the brand needed to have and be and and then we got introduced to uh, Andrew Smith, uh, my business partner in Willie Smith's, in well, over the phone and then we all, all flew down, um, you know, sat around having a chat, walked, spent the day walking around Mona um, and talking about what it might look like and um, kind of agreed from then that we would uh, start working towards getting something to market. So, um, so, Glennie was, you know, really involved from the design and branding originally, we had a few people along the way to help us in terms of, um, you know, getting to formulation, but then a good friend of yours and mine, um, Neil Cameron, we got on board to really finalise that kind of formulation style or, um, or, or and flavour profile that I was looking for because I was really clear that I wanted to be kind of cloudy and, and low acidity, et cetera, which is everything that you shouldn't do if you're trying to make a, you know, a natural product that's fermented. Um but yeah, Neil came on board and helped us out with that as well. so I mean that were the that were the key people, Glenn and Neil, helping Smithy and I get it moving, I suppose
1: and you 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 said at the time that that at the time you were starting this cider was having its moment, and I remember that you know <laughs> i'm I'm not sure I've lost track of how often people have said this is the year of cider, and it just doesn't uh, d- despite the success of Willie Smiths, cider just doesn't have ever seem to have gone mainstream is is that a fair observation
0: uh, well i think i think you'd say in tasmania it's mainstream mm-hmm. um and i think you could probably find some other regions around australia where it's mainstream and they tend to be in the apple growing regions where people have a real affinity with the industry um understand where it comes from Um, are really focused on kind of authentic cider and and excited by the different flavor profiles that you can get from cider Uh, and the reality is that's very similar to cider around the world after you know going overseas and spending time in France and Spain and the UK you realize um, that cider is got its heartlands everywhere Um, you know every now and then it, it kicks it punches above its weight and becomes kind of a more of a national beverage but it's still incredibly, um, you know, focused on um, the, the south southwest of England. Um, it's very, very strong there. Obviously, Brittany and Normandy, it's very strong. But then again, the rest of France, not strong, et cetera. So, you know, we got taken on a tour when we we're doing a tour, and, you know, and visiting Thatchers over in the UK. We went to the home of uh, Somerset Cricket Ground and watched Australia play Somerset. Thatcher's obviously a big sponsor and a big employer in the region and um, took us along in the corporate box. And there were 11 out of 12 pints being sold there were cider. I mean, it's just that's what people drank. Drink. It was more than mainstream. It was it was everything. Um, we're talking young, old, you know, every kind of demographic um, and psychographic there could be, and it was just massively cider. And so I'd say, you know, we see the same thing in Australia and um, Tasmania are, uh, I'd say cider definitely is mainstream, but when you're talking to someone in the middle of Sydney who probably last time they saw an apple tree might have been when they were growing up, went to old McDonald's farm, <laughs> um, they just don't have that connection with the with the beverage, I guess, like um like people le- living more closely um, to the to their orchards do, I think, so.
1: Again, I, I look at um, some of the you know beer adjacent. Uh, beverages of which cider is one ginger beer is another we we seem to have uh, seen ginger beer explode um, you know a couple of times and particularly now it seems to really have a a a significant foothold um, and and sells in a way that you know mainstream that cider doesn't is it just the proximity and the understanding of the agricultural side of cider that's holding cider back or is there an a part of the flavor profile of, you know, quality cider, um, that, that you, you've championed over the years.
0: If, if I could solve that one, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I would obviously be a probably very wealthy man, but, um, you know, I think it's probably something that, you know, thatchers have been trying to solve, um, for many years as well, based in, in Southwest England. Um, I think when you drink cider and drink it regularly, you become accustomed to it. Um, every time i have a pint of cider i think geez i should drink that more often but it's not always top of mind and i think that's probably more more to the point it's still you know when when it becomes part of you know the drinking repertoire for a group of people or a group of friends then then it's kind of a natural go-to but when when you're drinking beers with with a bunch of mates and everyone's on beers and then you want to get a cider chucked in and it, you kind of oh, just go the easy option i think it's probably more about that than anything um you know like i said when when you've got critical mass and you know people are more than willing to order cider and i tell you we're selling plenty of cider at duquesne mm. um there's no shortage of, of uh, willie smith sales here uh so yeah i don't know it's a it's a tough one um but yeah i, I couldn't couldn't tell you why mate honestly
1: one of the things that you've um, championed, we've we've discussed, and we've written about on on Brews News over the last decade is there's been a, a, a parallel argument about craft. You know, um, brewers used to debate what was craft beer, and I know you're a passionate advocate for you know what is proper cider or what is cider. What 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 are the challenges in communicating? You know, uh, well, I guess what is bad cider? What's the difference between good cider or craft cider and you know just mainstream generic cider in 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 your world
0: yeah okay well you've probably taken me to another point which i probably should have called out before but it is the fact that there's this dichotomy in cider of good quality craft cider of which is a relatively small part of the market and the mass produced um cider made from imported chinese concentrate and you know People aren't necessarily aware of the differences and they might try and buy one and go, geez, that was sweet and disgusting. I don't like cider. And then they might try a good quality one. They go, oh, I love that. And then they keep getting put off because they have such really varied experiences between the um, the two different kind of types of cider there are in the marketplace. And, you know, the, the manufactured, mass-produced cider made from imported concentrators has been designed to target a generally a younger audience who likes sweeter beverages um, and so you know people try to drink that and go oh that's disgusting when they want something craft because they can't necessarily find all these um, more quality um, cider beverages around the place so I mean it's probably I mean that's as much as anything is probably having an impact has continued to have an impact on the cider category really so
1: but that was one of the um, you know one of the things that sometimes I would uh yeah, we get in trouble for or, you know, raise the ire of some brewers for where, you know, even back 10 years ago when, you know, the malt, water, hops and yeast definition of, you know, small, traditional, independent um, craft brewery mindset was where a lot of the discussion was. And you would walk in and you had brewers who are passionate about the integrity of their beer offering, but then they also realised that they needed something for people who, for a variety of reasons, may not have drunk beer and then they would just buy concentrate fermented up without the same level of care they would put into their beer product and then just pour it out as a craft cider. And, you know, I would raise with them, you know, well, isn't there an inconsistency in your, in, in, in your message? Um, that must have been a frustration for you to see that sort of behavior from people who were trying to hold up a product as being better than the mainstream.
0: Oh, there's no doubt it was, um, and that's why we went for, you know, we spent a lot of time and effort trying to get a get that Trustmark launched, the 100% Australian grown, because it's not guaranteed, but if you're using, you know, 100% Australian apples um, or fresh apples um, from New Zealand or France or wherever in the production of your cider, then you're going to start with better ingredients and have a much better chance of making a better cider. Um, you know, that was definitely something that we were – focused on something that was frustrating for sure um i remember talking to wags um rest his soul um when he was at mountain goat and they were um when they were doing their you know cider two steps or whatever and just going what are you doing mate this is terrible and um he knew it too but you know it was filling a gap and it was about a bit more incremental revenue i guess and everyone's business owners they're not gonna you got to do what you got to do to stay afloat and stay alive and um, Couldn't really begrudge people that, but yeah, it was frustrating. But you know, I couldn't really (laughs) couldn't really rail against that.
1: My observation about it wasn't so much about um, you know I I had no real skin in the cider game, um, but I always saw it as undermining the essential promise of their beer offering as well. By you know, if, if if there's no integrity in one liquid, why should people care passionately about the other liquid?
0: Well, I think they spoke to completely different audiences and so I don't think they really cared, to be honest. So, um, But also they definitely often came up with a secondary brand for their cider offerings as well. So generally was the way they went about it.
1: Talk to me about Australian cider because, uh, the you know, the, the UK market is very traditional. You know, Normandy cider, again, um, my very sweeping observation about them is that they use what are known as cider apples that are often cider apples or cooking apples because they're terrible eating apples. And the cider was a way to use those in a, you know, it, it preserved fresh fruit in liquid form. Um, whereas no, a, well,
0: I, don't, I disagree on that okay. point. Um, I don't think they were a waste uh, stream product by any stretch of the imagination. They actually, um, you know, grew the best cider apples to make the best cider. Okay. good cider apples are good like good wine grapes you know I mean you don't eat wine grapes and um, and because they taste crap but once you ferment them they give out some magical or amazing flavors um, so I think the parallels between cider and wine um, when you're doing it properly are really quite strong um, you want to put the right cider apples in the ground in your orchard for in the same way you want to put the right grapes in your vineyard to come up with a you know, with a great quality end product. Cider, unlike wine, is probably more dependent on blending different uh, apples together to create the right balance of, uh, of flavour. But at the same time, some of our, you know, similar single varietal limited releases at Willie Smith's are cracking. Like, I love a good Kingston Black single varietal cider. Uh, we did a boomer's Norman last year as well. Um, and they just give, you know, different flavours rather than just necessarily the rounded, more balanced style that people like. Sorry, and,
1: and, and that was where I prefaced it by saying, as a sweeping generalization. So it wasn't, yeah, so it was more a case of you've got specialty cider apples in traditional cider countries. Whereas, to use your wine analogy, in Australia, we pretty much make wine out of table uh, grapes, <laughs> you know, the, the equivalent of uh, the, the, the apple equivalent of table grapes, where we use eating apples by and large to make cider and you know someone like willie smiths you've planted traditional uh cider varieties which makes the cider a little bit different is that a a a fair observation
0: oh yeah absolutely very fair and i think it's a continuing process i think more and more people are putting cider apples in the ground and i think we're going to see you know a a lot you know more better and better cider in the coming years because that process has started um you know i'd like to think willie smith's kind of championed that and and demonstrated that um people did there was a demand for this type of product because you know when we started there was uh, very much the belief in the industry that cider apples were bad no one wanted to drink anything made from cider apples but um you know we won our award for the 18 varietals well quite a long time ago now and then again the next year at the australian cider awards and the, and you know just the buzz around the room was uh, was pretty electric those that night and certainly the next year as well as people started to appreciate that we could make great cider in australia using cider apples and and there was actual demand for it as well so you know it's it's agriculture though it takes a good 5 years for uh, an apple tree to to grow and get ready to to flourish and start producing any kind of quantity of apples. And um, and it's also pretty capital intensive, agric- you know, planting trees and, and maintaining them as well. So people are doing what they can all around Australia. So I certainly feel the future looks bright. Um, you know, we're continuing to do more at Willie Smith's and, and we'll continue to. Uh, you know, our traditional cider is, that we have, which is a blend of one-third cider apples and two-thirds eating apples, is definitely, you know, my go-to cider, um, but you know, we've, and we've had to limit our ration supply of that because people are catching on to it and, and want it. Um, so yeah, it's, but we're, and we're starting to get some scale as well, but it's going to take more and you know, bigger and bigger investment over time. And, and, and that's coming, but, um, but yeah, it is agriculture and agriculture is, takes time. So yeah.
1: And you, you name checked, uh, I think it was a Kingston black, uh, which, uh, yeah. I was privileged to try. Oh wow! Four or five years ago, or even longer, um, and again, it blew my mind about how complex and interesting that could be. I, I, I guess the challenge is, as you said, making it more easily available.
0: Yeah, no, that's absolutely the challenge for sure. And um, you know, we've kind of probably since COVID refocused on Tasmania a bit more and done less um, less pushing out onto the mainland, um, and that probably hasn't hasn't helped. Con- continue to grow the category but i know there's lots of other cider producers um around australia who, who are making some great ciders and are punching out in their own regions as well and you know the more cellar doors we see for sire where people can get educated about the different styles of varieties um the better off we will be and and i know that's definitely happening um it's just like i say it's a it's a long-term game and um and but that's how farmers think and cider produces apple producers, farmers and um and they think in the long term and and that's what we've got to do to to have a you know sustainable and growing cider category in the long term. Unfortunately, the the decline of the you know big mass produced ones like Summersby it hasn't been offset by the growth in the small ones because we've made up a relatively small part of the market. You know we're probably about 10% now of the total market I'd imagine all of us put put together. Um, but when you've got you know some big brands like Summersby and Strongbow declining double-digit figures that's pretty hard to keep up with you know what I mean so
1: sorry and I, I should preface this by saying you were president of cider Australia um, for, for, for a period in fact uh, I think you were instrumental in setting up the association how many craft cideries are there you know um, that, that, that meet your definition of uh, craft cideries in, in, in Australia
0: when you say meet my definition I mean I think is there a definition
1: yeah is, is there a definition like do you have to grow your own apples grow your own fruit for example
0: well, you can go very extreme on that front and say you have to grow your own apples, etc. I don't. I'm not of that ilk at all um, because it tends to become exclusive and and serve no purpose. Um, you know, but I think I think the basic definition that we put together, the most simplest, was that you're using um, 100% Australian-grown fruit. Um, that's the Trust Mark we've got, the 100% Australian-grown Trust Mark. And if you're doing that, then you're supporting regional agriculture and um, and and that's a bloody good starting point. So um, that's 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 the definition, I, I guess. Last I knew, I thought there was about 120 cideries around Australia that were probably meeting that definition, but that was probably a couple of years ago, or uh, and um, and I haven't really um, kept in touch with the cider Australia um, figures, facts and figures. Yep. Sorry, since I've stepped down as president.
1: Are, are there the, the, the same challenges in educating consumers about the difference between, you know, for, for want of a better term, good cider and, you know, uh, just commodity cider um, or, you know, craft cider made with Australian apples over commodity cider?
0: Um, oh, there's obviously huge challenges uh, with it. Um, you know, it's something we always dreamed of one day having you know curtis stone on tv talking about uh, australian cider made from australian fruit but um you know b- our budgets are very small
1: and unfortunately people like that need to be paid to uh, in in endorsed you don't get people championing an industry without a uh, that commercial outcome i'd imagine
0: no that's right and so you know we've obviously you know started chipping away continue to chip away through education at cellar door and education at festivals events and events of course festivals and events Pretty much went on hold for the last two or three years with COVID. So um, you know, now's the time to, I suppose, re-engage that side of things. Um, and uh, and yeah, we've got the cider awards. We've got a really amazing French cider maker coming out for the cider awards this year, and and that'll be a really great chance to um, to do some great engagement with media as well.
1: Fast forward. Ten years from uh, when you uh, co-founded Willie Smiths, uh, having <laughs> having decided that the uh, brewing industry might have been a little bit uh, played out ten years ago, you've opened a significant brewery uh, in, in Tasmania now, uh, Duquesne. Tell us your your thought process there.
0: Um, well, it just came about with, uh, at the start of COVID, moving to into my parents' place, to be honest, in Monseston. Uh, with my th- family, um, my wife and I were working very hard. I was working to try and keep Willie Smiths afloat and had no idea what was going to happen, cut all our pay and budgets and everything to try and stay alive. Um, we had a small house with no backyard and the thought of getting and reading about what was happening in um, Spain and Italy, the thought of getting locked down in our house with no backyard and two young crazy kids <laughs> and both of us working out full time. Didn't sound appealing, so we moved in um, to mum and dad's place here in Launceston, um, and, and and yeah, just uh, after probably six months here, found ourselves enjoying the lifestyle. Um, I was in uh, – li- like I said, I was living in Bondi before that. Um, it was intense, pretty stressful, huge mortgage stress, all that fun stuff of living in city, um, lots of traffic, um, and Launceston is a big country town, really, and, um, was feeling comfortable, you know, having grandparents nearby, um, very nearby as it turned out. We bought a place that my kids can hop over three back fences and and get to them, um, was was amazing. And, um, and you know, I just actually started thinking uh, what could be. Uh, I thought that Launceston is the 20th biggest municipality in Australia and didn't have a, a you know, a brewery you could visit, which was uh, something that just seemed to, well, it's just I couldn't, I couldn't believe it, really. Um, and then I also was thinking there was no family-friendly venue. I mean, you've got St John's and Tandy's that I like to go out to, very craft beer-focused venues here, but they're not venues where I'd feel comfortable taking my children to really either. So, you know, thinking about that and thinking about, you know, staying here and, and you know, doing something that might make an impact, um, which is something, you know, I, you know, this might sound trite, but something i like to try and do if I'm going to do something. Uh, I feel like we made a pretty positive impact on the Huon Valley with uh, Willie Smith's Apple Shed and, and hopefully Australian Cider as well with Willie Smith's. Um, you know, I thought there's a real opportunity here that I'd like to get after. Um, I knew Will Horan, who founded Duquesne from when he worked with us um, at uh, Festivale, which is a festival up here, um, until he moved, moved over to Morrison and started. Uh, working for them, then he couldn't give us any time to do any shifts at the festival up here. But um, re-engaged really with him after meeting with Luke Dempsey uh, from Sonic Syrup, um, who suggested I get in touch because, you know, Will had a great brand, had a great beer, um, but it was probably treading water a little bit. So Will and I started talking um, and kind of talking about it, what it could be. He was pretty interested in the idea of kind of making it, you know, bringing his dream into something a little bit bigger, I suppose, and and um, giving it a brand home. Uh, so, you know, probably I I kind of stepped out of um, my role of running Willie Smith's in October 2020, and um, and kind of almost immediately, well, I was applying for jobs, but. Realised I probably couldn't work for anybody after spending ten years working myself, <laughs> um, and I kind of the had curse to leave of the court.
1: entrepreneur. <laughs>
0: yeah, and I, I, kind of had to leave Diageo when I did because I was pretty much, yeah, it was it was wasn't corporate life wasn't really for me. I guess at the end of the day, so um, so yeah, I um, I thought, oh well, let's give this a go. So, um, yeah, started working on it from October. I looked at a number of sites around town um, until discovered this one on princes square which is um it's the old all goods tent city building um right on Princess square which is a kind of a burgeoning hospitality hub here in launceston um and it's 1500 square meter building um i looked inside there are a bunch of um old vintage cars being stored inside and i found out a guy called rob sherrard who was the co-founder of um, virgin blue who lives on the other side of the square was using it as a garage I would say the world's most expensive garage, but it probably wasn't, but probably definitely Tasmania's most expensive garage. And um, that being said, his cars are probably worth more than the building. (laughs) Uh, And so, yeah, we got in touch with Rob and started talking to him about, you know, whether he'd be interested in, um, you know, leasing the building to us. Um, Eventually talked him around. Um, He was pretty excited to see things happening in Launceston and uh, and then realised – after doing the budgets, how much money we'd be needing to spend on the bloody thing, thought <laughs> we better, we better we better buy it because otherwise it's just not going to work out. So got a few mates on board who were also keen bushwalkers um, who actually really probably introduced me to bushwalking. since I had moved back to Lonnie. Um, uh, and so, yeah, the kind of Will as the founder and then these four other fellas um, and I kind of pushed on. Um Bought the building and um, and then started the planning process in earnest. And that was about probably about 12 months ago, maybe maybe 15 months ago now. Um, and, yeah, we've managed to just open it two weeks ago. So um, Duquesne brand is named after the Duquesne range. Um, Will was a former guide on the Overland track working with Taz Walking Company. Um, the traditional thinking was that the TAS Walking Company customers who were high-end premium customers paying You know, $4,000 to walk the Overland Track would only like, um, you know, wines on their tour. Um, Will and a few of the other guides got together and convinced them to give beer a chance. So Will brewed his first batch um, and it got helicoptered in. And surprise, surprise, people after a day's bushwalking quite like drinking a beer or two, Mm. um, especially nice beer. Uh, And so he came up with this name, Duquesne. which is named after the Duquesne range at the bottom of the Overland track. So he got his friend Sam Lynn to illustrate a few cans up and um, a few diagrams up, a few pictures of huts and and peaks, and that that was Duquesne, really. So, And he'd been making that, I guess, probably for about two and a half, three years, two and a half years when I started talking to him. Um, he was doing that on the side whilst being head brewer at Morrison and also working at um, crown sellers which is lonnie's best beer store and beverage store so he, he had a few things going on and i think the thought of um you know having a full-time job at the end of this too is probably pretty appealing especially since he's got a long-term partner and they've just had a child actually at about the same time that duquesne was launched so
1: so having watched you know through the prism of cider for 10 years uh how has the brewing industry changed do you think, uh, you know, from, from when you first looked at it to when uh, you opened Duquesne?
0: Um, I don't know. I, I it, It's evolved over time, um, uh, but there's still really good people in there. I've got a lot of good friends that I've met, you know. We tried to, from the start, get Willie Smith seen as a craft cider and, and played in that craft cider space. I've got a lot of great mates, um, you know, in the brewing industry who I've kept in touch with. Um, you know the guys at stomping ground especially Justin and Asher were really instrumental in helping um, get this off the ground with their support and thinking and um you know Asher even purchased a brewer- brewery for us but um out of China so but how's it changed i think it's changed it's it's become you know i guess more professional um it's become more pervasive but it's also become more local as well and i think that is probably the number one change, and we're seeing that with everything, really.
1: Mm. So, 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 in setting up Duquesne, are you looking at being a, a, a major regional brewery that will be, you know, shipping beer off the island, or are you looking to really be the La- Launceston, you know, destination brewery?
0: Uh, definitely the latter. Um, I <laughs> busted a gut for ten years trying to get Willie Smith's all around Australia, and it's bloody hard work. Um, It's uh, bloody hard work and it also is very cash flow intensive. When it came to doing Duquesne, I just thought there's a real opportunity to kind of bring the community together, give Launceston a venue it's proud of and give Launceston a a beer it's proud of other than Bogues, I guess. Um, You know, uh, I thought we might be kind of selling kind of a third through the venue, hopefully, and then two thirds wholesale. But based on the response we've had early days, I think it's going to be two thirds through the venue and uh, and one third wholesale, which is a great place to be. I think so. And
1: wholesale locally, or you know, even are we going to see a a north south Tasmania divide uh, between Duquesne and maybe you know Mubru, for example, the the way that we've always seen with uh, Bogues and Cascade?
0: Who's to say what will happen in years to come? But you know, our best biggest wholesale market is definitely Hobart right now. Um, a lot of there's a lot of bushwalkers in Hobart and then people finish the overland track down in Hobart too so I think the brand and you know and a lot of Will's mates um, are, are guides and everything so definitely the biggest wholesale market for us is is Hobart um, but we're hoping um, we can convince more venues here in Launceston which is a very very heavily contracted market um, it blows my mind you know even great publicans who I consider great friends just still can't get their head around craft beer here and you know, you walk into m- almost all venues and it's you barely see an independent tap. Um, so that was kind of part of the excitement and challenge as well, is just showing people that you don't just have to be fully craft beer venue, you know, hardcore craft beer venue like Tandy's at St John's to, to be able to pour craft beer, I suppose. So we're hoping we can, we can change that a little bit and break some of these contracts locally.
1: Do you think... It it it's funny because local and independence are two of the words that have been bandied around in, in, in craft beer. And independent generally means free of you know foreign ownership or the you know the, 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 the multinationals. But local can be anybody. Um, you know, do you think consumers care that local and independent um, is, is enough, or is you know a strong brand that's very much associated with uh, Launceston is, is is enough for consumers?
0: Well, I mean, Bogue's is probably – Bogue's still dominates this market in Launceston, and I would have to think it'd be a completely unique market in Australia where you've got a multinational um, brewery that still dominates its local market. Um, You know, I think people haven't thought about who it's owned by here uh, in Launceston, and, um, and part of our shtick is that we're only going to be serving kind of wines and spirits that are, you know, made and owned in Tasmania and, um, and that you can find basically along the Tama Valley Winery, um, that is probably going to be one of our positions that we have to help deposition bogues and make people ask the question of ownership a little bit more uh, because, you know, people aren't doing that here. Um, people are just not even aware that it's owned by um, a Japanese conglomerate. Um, so, you know, hopefully we'll get people to ask the question at least. But certainly Bogues is a, is a big employer here and, um, and you know, we certainly mm. want to continue to work with them as well. There's some great people at Bogues and, and, and they've done great things for the city. But I uh, just think it's about giving people an alternative as well.
1: What's the, uh, the, the, the brand offer then? You know, what, what, what beers are you, uh, are, are you making? Are you looking for like a local taproom experience or, you know, are you looking for beers that really play into that uh, craft beer aficionado market?
0: No, we're very much going to go for um, really approachable, well-made beers in each kind of category. Um, You know, Will started with uh, Pilsner um, and then, of course, had a pale ale. So when I first started chatting to Will, he had a Pilsner and a pale. Um, He had done kind of stouts, uh, like limited releases stouts, which were absolutely freaking delicious as well in the past. Um, But our kind of core range that we've got, At the moment now is Pills Pale. Uh, We've got a mid-strength, which was our kind of third kind of core range uh, that's also in cans now as well. Um, That's kind of a a mid-strength pale ale and very delicious and drinkable. Um, We've got an IPA and a stout uh, and Will's brewed a dark lager as well that's tasting absolutely delicious. We were going to put the stout into cans, but I think the – the dark lager is probably going to beat it to it to the cans <laughs> because uh, it's proving to be fairly popular. Uh, and another thing we want to do though is kind of a do a like a sour beer as well, um, so that we're pouring currently up a lot of wine and um, so give people and you know and females probably generally more so um, a beverage a beer that they can get into as well. Um, so yeah, we want to be pretty approachable. We want to be fa- we want to be family friendly. It's working so far, and um, and a raspberry sour would probably seem to kind of bookend that kind of core range that we're talking about. Um, and, we've, you know, we're friends with um, a number of berry farmers here. Raspberry farming's massive here in Launceston, and um, and so a bit of a collaboration with um, maybe Hillwood Berry Farm who have their own cellar door um, would be a really nice touch because most of the wines and spirits we're pouring all have cellar doors too, and we're really looking forward to, Helping visitors um, to Launceston and Northern Tasmania explore the region from a from an alcohol and an alcoholic beverage perspective.
1: Well, mate, it, it, it's been great hearing about the plans for decay. and congratulations on firstly on everything you achieve with Willie Smith. Um, you know, as a long time uh, observer of, of, of that, I saw how hard you worked to, you know, really champion uh cider and uh, all the very best uh taking duquesne to the the, the launceston market and, uh, and beyond and uh, i'm well overdue a, a visit to uh tassie so hopefully i can get down there very soon and uh check it out
0: oh mate we'd love to see you down here and uh first beers on me for sure <laughs> good on you sam reed thanks for this conversation cheers matt thank you
1: and that was sam reed I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on cider and if it's a different drink to craft beer and why. Are you a cider drinker? Why? If not, why not? You can share your thoughts in our Facebook group. Just search for Radio Brews News and use the password soapbox. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show, reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting service, or emailing us your thoughts and show suggestions to producer at brewsnews.com.au. You'll find links to those in the show notes. Don't forget, we'll be back this Friday with all of our thoughts on the news of the week on Bruce News Week. We look forward to seeing you then.